welcome to Tav's Two Cents, a show for average Joe investors where we talk finance and how to achieve success. Hi, welcome to Tav's Two Cents, a show where we talk about finance, business, and achieving success. Today on the show, we have Savon Springer. Savon is the creator of Native Assets, Blockchain Co., and he's also an author of The Blockchain Blueprint. We talk everything blockchain, crypto, digital assets, NFTs. Hope you enjoy the show. Savon, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you, Joe. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for coming on. I wonder if we could start just with an introduction. Uh, what is Native Assets and uh, what got you started on the blockchain educational path? Yeah, great question. So Native Assets, what we do is we help teach people so that they can achieve what we call blockchain literacy. Uh, as we move further into this ever-digitized realm, digitally native assets are becoming more of the norm. And so we want to make sure that people are in a position where they understand these technologies, how to use them, um, the upsides and the downsides to, to their existence and their use so they can be an informed user and they can not, uh, not only thrive, but you know, prosper and profit off of this, uh, uh, this technological wave that we're seeing. So uh, that's what we do over native assets. We do that through a combination of uh, educational materials, whether that be videos, be a book, uh, be written articles or private consultation. We do all of that. Uh, now, as far as how I got into the, the blockchain education space, I've always been in the tech my whole life. You, know, you can find me on the Pirate Bay. You can find me downloading torrents of Call of Duty, that sort of thing, uh, changing the kernels on my Android phone, all of that. Uh, and in 2017, I got back into crypto. I'd heard about it, but I'd never really followed it closely because uh, I thought it was going to be like a here today, gone tomorrow sort of thing. Didn't happen. Uh, somebody brought it back to my attention. So I started following it, put some money into it. And then the market crashed in 2018. And it's like, okay, cool. We're only going to lose this money if we sell it at loss. So let's keep it in. And I just started refining uh, my understanding of it all to to really get intimately familiar with the uh, sector and, and all its nuances. And in 2020, man, it just hit me like a, like a wall of you know, bricks. I was like, hey, there's a lot of people who really don't understand this stuff. And there's not really a great entity set up to teach people from zero what they need to know about that it very clearly communicates the values of it. Um, at the time, you had to kind of just jump around on YouTube all day and try to string info together um, from a source that may or may not be credible, may or may not be biased. And so that's really what created the, the idea to put the firm together. Absolutely. And I, I fully agree that there needs to be some kind of place that people can go to learn from zero, as you say, about blockchain, crypto, Bitcoin, all this stuff. So with that being said, let, why don't we just start with probably the most familiar crypto there is, Bitcoin. What is Bitcoin and how does it work? Yes, yeah, so, so Bitcoin is definitely the OG. Uh, and the, the main thing to keep in mind about Bitcoin is that it was one of those situations uh, that's termed immaculate idea that there'll never be anything that can replicate Bitcoin first coming into existence. And part of why that's important is because when it came to be, the market had to deem if there was any value there. Uh, now, one could say that there's inherent value in the mathematics and the security of it and how it's created and everything. But if people, if we as a, a society did not deem it valuable, it would not have any value today. Um, so really, the, the simplest way to communicate it is Bitcoin is a mathematically verifiable source of scarcity. And at this point in history, there hasn't ever really been an invention, something that is provably scarce, programmatically so, 
and for us to have the ability to track it in a continuous fashion to really see precisely how much of it has been created, how much remains to be created, and then allow the market to put its own economics behind supply and demand. Uh, now, the other powerful thing about it is the way that it is secured. And so if you think about somebody who uses their bank account today, when you see your money in there, I won't go too deep into it unless you want to, but basically it's an IOU that's in your bank account that the bank is showing you that you have a claim towards, but that's not actually money in your account. The money's being used somewhere else because the fractional reserve lending scheme, where they're basically creating and monetizing debt from the money that you entrust with them. Whereas with something like crypto and specifically Bitcoin, that asset, that digitally native asset, meaning it only exists truly in that digital space, it in and of itself is the value. It's not a representation of value. It is the thing that has the value. And the way that it was originally put into circulation is you had to mine Bitcoin. So you effectively had to crowdsource computational resources to dedicate towards this network so that it could churn out and create new Bitcoin. And some argue that that's actually one of the most novel innovations of Bitcoin is that it found a way to effectively give a value or a price to um, computational work, which was something that hadn't really been done before. And so you're taking people who before you're basically converting that energy, that electricity into a value by pouring it into this asset. Um, so that's probably a really long explanation to what Bitcoin is, but, but the long short of it, it's digitally native value, digital programmable scarcity. No, that's perfect. I'm, I'm looking for long answers here because generally what, you know, people say is they say, well, it's a digital token and it's, there's only so many of them and that's the only answer you get. So the long answers are great. And for what I understand is Bitcoin is authenticated with the blockchain technology. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that works. Thank you. Thank you. That's an important distinction. So Bitcoin was the first real application we saw of a blockchain. And what a blockchain is, is basically a ledger of authenticity of irrefutable truth in regards to the history of change, right? So for instance, there's something known as the as triple entry accounting. But it's basically this idea that all parties involved in the transaction and even people, parties who are not involved in the transaction have the ability and the same access to information regarding the history of actions. And so that may sound a little ethereal, but think about it this way. It removes the need to trust that somebody is providing you with accurate information because what the blockchain does is it shows a history. It chains all of these actions together and then pushes them out as blocks of data. And so it shows you with irrefutable accuracy what has happened on that chain. And so if Timmy said that he sent $5 to Susie and then Susie says she never got it, well, there's a history on that ledger that shows whether Timmy did or did not send $5 to Susie, what time he sent it, exactly how much it was, when it was received in her wallet, and if Susie ever did anything with that money. And that's all done on the record, and, and there's no ability for anyone to go in after the fact and alter or change that record. So it really makes it so that historically, where there have been many intermediaries 
required to sit in the center of transactions as an authority so that both parties who are involved in the transaction feel comfortable with the legitimacy of that transaction. It removes the need for that because the blockchain effectively acts as that authentication layer because everybody has equal access to view that ledger to really see the history of what has been done and to also see, and this is more specific with like smart contracts on Ethereum or other smart contract platforms, but it also allows you to see the code of exactly what is going to happen given certain inputs or what um, what authority the application you're interacting with has. So does this application have the authority to access all the funds in your MetaMask wallet? Well, if it does, there's not going to be, the, there, there won't be any way to hide that ability when you read through the contract data. And these are just other things that the blockchain provides. You kind of have to put it all out there, so to say. And I know that in the past, some people have thought that using a blockchain based technology means that you're going to be anonymous. It couldn't be further from the truth. Everything you do is actually on the blockchain. What it does is it adds pseudonymity to whatever it is you're doing. So maybe if you're interacting with the blockchain, it doesn't say that Joe did this. But if somebody knows that Joe is associated with this address or this other app that is interacting with it, then they can put those two things together, even though your name may not be on it necessarily. So the way in which Bitcoin first utilized this technology was that it showed a history of every time somebody, every time a Bitcoin was created, uh, when exactly in time it was created, whose uh, contribution to the network in terms of mining or hash power was attributed to actually mining or solving the block equation and thus being rewarded the Bitcoin and as well as where it was sent to, how it's been received and, and that sort of information where all of it is tracked on chain. So nobody can ever lose track of it being any sort of dispute of what happened or the chain of custody of funds. Um, the age of a certain Bitcoin can never be um can never be falsified. It can be obfuscated if somebody uses something like a mixer, but but that's getting a little bit niche. But yes, that's basically what the point of attaching a blockchain to this particular process was. That actually clears a major question that I had up about Bitcoin, which was how do people stay anonymous when everything is so clearly tracked? <laughs> and obviously the way to do that would be to have a wallet that nobody knows is yours. And that must be the way. So with that being said, obviously there's a lot of uses in the world for authentication and blockchain isn't just Bitcoin. There's I'm assuming there's many blockchains out there. Where are they being used in the world right now? Man, that's such a good question. Uh, so ownership, ownership and access and entitlement to rights. That's one of the big uses that, that's being put into place. And that's actually the, the one of the main selling points behind NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens, meaning that they're they're not interchangeable. Each one is in and of itself. And so a lot of times when people think of NFTs in the, in the mainstream context today, it's very common for them to picture a bored ape, you know, and they may say, how is anybody paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for this picture? But the thing is, by associating it with a blockchain, what you're able to do is with, without any shadow of a doubt, what you're able to do is prove who owns that particular asset. And the reason that's important is because even we just continue to look at art. If you go in the traditional art world, and even I'm not sure if you've seen the movie Tenet, this was like one of the huge plot points of 
the movie, uh, but whether or not a piece of artwork is legitimate or if it's some sort of falsification. Um, when something is created on the blockchain, like we've spoken about before, you see its entire history and its entire trajectory. So there's really, there can't be any confusion once you inspect the actual data on chain as to whether or not you've bought a true board ape or if you bought somebody who created a contract took the JPEG, put it in there, and it looks like a board ape, but isn't really the real thing. And it also allows you to see from every step of the equation, from literally it being minted, which is basically the first time it is punched out on the blockchain, it's like a fresh Bitcoin being mined all the way to who currently owns it. So you can see exactly who bought it before you, who bought it before them, who bought it before them, all the way back to the genesis of when it was created, and then what contract created it. And so that whole time, you can see that history. So there's no question about the chain of custody and when it moved between parties. Another thing that you can associate with it is also programmability that's built into this on the back end. And part of what gets really cool when we're talking about crypto is it's blockchains and cryptocurrency is natively designed to treat money as a native property. It's not something that you have to shoehorn in to try to make it work an interface. That being the case, when you mint one of these NFTs, you can program it into the contract to say, all right, after I create this, this NFT, whether it's a board ape or whether it's a, a song from a catalog of music, I want this to produce a royalty of 10% in perpetuity every time it is sold that will be sent back to me as the original creator of this collection. And so what that then does is make sure that the artist or whoever created that NFT can put themselves in a position where they are programmatically guaranteed. I have a little asterisk there because depending on the resale platform they use, but more or less, this is, this is the case that will happen and we we'll get that royalty where now down the road, no matter if I originally sold my piece of artwork for a dollar and in 50 years, it's selling for a million dollars. I still get to capture a piece of the value of what the market deems that piece to be worth because I've programmed in a royalty mechanism, which also adds to the sustainability of being an artist or being somebody who, who wants to have a way to capture how the market presently values something that they may have created long in the past. Uh, because that can change over time. So that's an authentication method. It's also being used um, for energy grids. So there's a, a blockchain or a cryptocurrency project by the name of Energy Web, and they're actually uh, working on distributed energy resale markets. And so they've done pilots in Australia and some other parts of Europe where they basically are allowing people who have excess power from whether it be a Tesla battery wall or something like that, if they have a disc ext extra power left over, they're able to then resell that on the market to somebody else who wants that electricity as far as credits goes. And they're tracking all of this energy that is generated, how it's sold, how it's transferred. They're using the blockchain to track all of that data as well. And then also create more efficient markets for pricing uh, these energy units, so to say. Uh, and, and there's a bunch of other uses, but, but those are definitely some of the uses that are currently taking place. So how does a blockchain for something like energy, for example, where, you know, there's not a finite amount, there's 
there's going to be more energy put on the grid. They must have a mechanism where they create new blocks as as demand for the energy is created. Yeah, so the blockchain itself is really just tracking data. That's what the blockchain does. So then when you build a, an application or a product, you're really just looking for, all right, what is important that we use on-chain, on which basically means connected to a blockchain. Because there are many apps and services that use a combination of on-chain data and off-chain real-world data. And the way that those two are bridged is using something known as an oracle. And so, for instance, the most popular oracle by far is an oracle called chain but there's another oracle called api3 and that like is up 30 or 40 percent you know in the last couple of days because they just announced a couple of partnerships but basically what the oracle does is it's a feed of data so if we think about it like an api where if you want your website or your application to behave a certain way you can feed in an api that's okay uh we want to know the last transaction from your shopify store uh, when we get data from the transactions, we can use this API to then spit out a entry into some sort of uh, account manager that you may have or to create uh, an invoice, something like that. You can have it do it automatically. You can do the same thing with a blockchain where you can take off-world data or off-chain uh, off data. Let's say maybe it's weather or it's the, the price of a stock. And then you can take that, feed it to a blockchain and now it is basically taking information that was not generated on chain, but then incorporated into decisions that are being made based on some of these inputs that, that weren't generated natively on the blockchain. But nevertheless, you can bring in to help create certain kind of programmable situations. So um, people who have weather apps or they have dynamic insurance to cover crops in a certain region of the world where they can dynamically scale the pricing of insurance based on weather data that they may be feeding from the weather channel, for instance, uh, or something like that, or AccuWeather, and they can use those inputs to help make certain decisions on the end of that blockchain. So it's not always necessarily an issue uh, or one-to-one -one where if, for instance, in the, in the instance of energy web, it's not like they're issuing blocks for every joule or every watt of energy that's created. More so, they're using their blockchain to prioritize data around energy markets, energy uses, and energy consumption. So they're really kind of feeding this data in so that that data is incorruptible that then they can make other decisions on. And that's when you know it, it, it can help them dynamically scale pricing on these resale markets and, and things like that. Um, but yeah, every blockchain is going to use that data in a little bit different of a way. <laughs> I see you kind of shaking your head. <laughs> Man, that is some complex stuff, but I think it's amazing to um, talk to you about this. So when you talk about contracts, like smart contracts, mm -hmm. Web3, all this stuff, like yeah. I feel like from my eyes, the word contract is almost like a trade word. Like what do they mean when they say a contract, a smart contract? A smart contract is basically, you can think about it, I love this analogy. It's like a digital vending machine. And so if you've ever taken code or anybody that's done some basic coding, it's basically a series of if-then statements. If this happens, then do this. So if I click on this little button on the web page, then load up this other page, right? That's basically just code, more or less. And then get infinitely complex with that, binary. So a smart contract, think about it like code. Difference being the inputs 
that you put in can be fed data from other blockchains, but it's it's it has to execute in a fashion that the, the, the contract stipulates. That's why it's called a contract because it's basically no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Once X trigger takes place, then there's going to be a sequence of events that, that follows and there's a hierarchy to how that sequence of events is going to play out. Very similar to code, but it's all being fed inputs from blockchain sources. So same concept. If we can't corrupt a blockchain to begin with, then it's going to be hard to corrupt the data going into a smart contract. You can't just tell it something. It has to be fed this from a blockchain so that it kind of trusts that information in a different way without the need to trust it because it knows that that information is verifiably correct based on the blockchain. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't scam and do funny stuff you know, with these smart contracts, but you have to give it permission to interact with your wallet, for instance, before it can do any of that. Um, so to give you an example, decentralized finance, trustless capital markets, I think that's kind of a better way to think about it. DeFi, you know, sounds really nice. And in some situations, it's not fully decentralized, so it's not as uh, genuine of a term in certain situations. But basically this idea that you can remove barriers to entry for a lot of financial to application. So I was talking to my aunt about this earlier. She was asking about powwow and earlier today. And I was trying to explain to her the idea of micro banks in Latin American countries and Africa, places like that, where you might have somebody, a villager may go to the micro bank looking for a micro loan, of, let's call it $500. And they want to take this $500 and then use that to set themselves up where they can have a, a stand at the market to sell mangoes or something like that but they need to get a couple of items and resources before they're able to do that. Now to us, $500, we don't call it micro loan because most people in the U.S., you start a business, you're trying to get tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. Whereas in these other countries, it literally might be $100. It might be $200. But then all the middlemen involved in the, in the interest rates they're going to charge these people when they're barely giving them any money or a bunch of barriers to interest, if they get approved, all that. So what trustless capital markets allow you to do is have a programmable, contract that stipulates, for instance, if you deposit $100 worth of collateral, we will automatically give you 50% of that collateral as a loan immediately. We won't ask you your name. We don't need a social security number. We don't need your credit score. All we need is your collateral. Put your collateral in, you are guaranteed alone because your collateral is crypto. It's digitally native asset verified on the blockchain. So when you deposit it to the smart contract, everything has been verified as legit. We don't need to wonder if your money is authentic currency or if it's imitation uh, counterfeit bills. We don't need to know if you've written a, a bad check that's going to bounce you know, if you have some weird charge back that, that allows you to make this credit, all it's reading is, oh, they put $100 of Bitcoin in here. Cool. That's real Bitcoin. Ergo, it's legitimate collateral. Boom. Now we're going to give you 50% of a loan against that. Now, the other reason that they can do that is because part of that smart contract may also stipulate your interest rate is, let's call it 15%, 10%, compounding daily, whatever. You can pay it back at any time. 
There's no minimums. There's no prepayment penalty. And there's no due date. So long as you have not, you know, you have an outstanding loan, we will hold on to your collateral. But the moment you begin to pay your collateral back in one-to-one fashion, more or less, we will begin to release your loan, your collateral back to you. So you gave us a hundred, we gave you a loan of 50, you pay us back a dollar, we'll give you 50 cents of your collateral back. Does that make sense? And you can do all of this automatically. So it's not like somebody has to review this paperwork, has to sign off on it. The moment you interact with a smart contract, it just does it. And so then you can begin to take these very specific functions and stack them on top of each other to create new applications very, very quickly because you don't have to be the one to create the code. You can take another person's code because it's open source almost 99% of the time and then incorporate it to somebody else's smart contract. And now before you know it, you have a much more robust service or product that is built on all these primitives that are automatically going to execute because it trusts all of the data that's being fed into it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. So in the, in the case of a song, let's say a, an a artist comes out with a song they can incorporate into their smart contract or NFT. If this song gets sold to somebody else for $1, then I get one cent or 1% of whatever it sells for. And then every single time from then on, if it sells again, because there's only one authenticated NFT version of the song, it, they will get 1% each time it sells. And that's, you know, it seems yeah. like the the ability for these smart contracts is basically endless, really. I mean, more or less, it begins to come down how creatively can somebody put something together in, in, in a way that, that is actually providing value because sometimes there's been a criticism over time. And this isn't just a blockchain thing. This is just a tech thing where uh, a lot of times the criticism can be levied that, it's a solution looking for a problem. That's a phrase that I hear sometimes. And, you know, at first, maybe that was kind of fair. I mean, Bitcoin had a very specific function. And I, at the time of inception, the idea was for it to be digitally native internet money. And that narrative has changed a bit to be a you know, digitally native store of value. And so with the smart contracts, they start off very simple several years ago to now they're, they're, they're being stacked in such a way where, you know, there's programmatically generated yield and somebody can, uh, like there's a protocol being developed that'll be launching soon called Sandclock where you can create a trust and you can deposit principal. So let's say you put a thousand dollars into it and you can tell it to programmatically do certain things with the yield that's generated. So you make your, you deposit your principal and let's say it's only 20%, you know, interest a year. So after one year, you put a thousand in, you now have 200 extra dollars. You can tell it as it's generating its yields to send. So if you get 20% yield, let's look at the yield, hundred percent of that yield, you can send 50% of it um, to, to continue to compound. You can send 20% of it to dollar cost average into an, another asset. You can send another 20% uh, all out to a different wallet of yours. And then you can send 10% of it to automatically donate to a charity that accepts that cryptocurrency. 
And you can have this all happen automatically based on the smart contracts program. And once again, there's nobody that has to prove you to be able to do this or tell you you can do it as long, long as you have collateral to deposit into the contract, it will execute these functions for you. And so, you know, some people have already begun to think about ways where you can create a subscription that pays for itself. Somebody make a, an initial deposit of, let's call it $100. Let's say one day down the road, you want to create a membership site for the content that you make. You can say that, okay, to get access to my content forever is $100. Somebody gives you the $100 and they deposit it to an account like, you know, this, this protocol enables you to do. And then that protocol is taking that hundred dollars and creating yield on it. And now that yield you continuously take as payment for your membership on an ongoing basis. So that way somebody has a one-time payment membership that is creating fresh revenue for the subscription creator, but the subscriber never has to pay for it. But that one time, does that make sense? Yeah, that totally makes sense. That's almost like what the banks are doing with our money right now, because you <laughs> give them money and they, they make yield on it, right? Yeah, um, and then so, they do what they want to with it. Yeah, so then what um, what chains are these smart contracts running on? Are they just, you know, crypto of your choice or are they, like, how, how, do they, how does the actual function work with a smart contract? Do they have to link to a Ether block or how does that work? So it's, it's, it's the process in a lot of ways is very similar. Uh, just a smart contract in general, you basically have an if then statement, but the data that's being fed into it comes from a blockchain. And then when it executes all of those functions. So for instance, when you deposit money into, uh, let's say this yield creating protocol, it's called Sandclock, that deposit is going to be registered and logged on the blockchain. Then when the contract issues you yield, that is logged on the blockchain. When you claim your yield, that is logged on the blockchain. So every interaction you have is written on block, on chain somewhere. And it's not necessarily written in such a way that you can just, I mean, you can, it's legible, but you have to kind of learn how to read a smart contract. So you can open up a block explorer, go to the function tab, let's see what the functions are. You can read the outputs at this time, this amount was sent to this address, this much was claimed. Because it's funny, even as complex as all these things get, it's basically falls down to, to one of three actions, almost every single thing that ever happens in crypto. It's either a deposit transaction, a withdrawal transaction, or an approval transaction, or a sign, a signature confirmation. Those are basically the only three things you can do, but being able to do that allows you to do all the things we've already talked about. Because when you deposit, that's when you put an input in, when you withdraw, that you taking an output. And then a confirmation is when you give an application permission to begin doing things. And then you can revoke that permission. And so when you really kind of get your head wrapped around that, at least for me, it simplified everything. And so in terms of how they work, that's basically how they work, the smart contracts. Ethereum was the, the first real smart contract to gain traction. It's still the most dominant one. Um, the main issue there is that it gets so much use. And right now, it's it gets congested, the network, so the fees can price out um, the average retail person. Because sometimes, depending on what you may be doing, it may cost you $60 to do a transaction. If you only have $100 to play with in the first place, 
that's not that's not really feasible. So then come in other blockchains, smart contract platforms like Solana, AVAX, uh, Terra, Phantom, these different blockchains. And, and usually the value proposition they're providing is um, lower fees. That's really the dominant reason that a lot of these have gained traction. If Ethereum did not have a fee problem. Most of these other chains in 2021 probably wouldn't have blown up the way that they did, but there was such a demand for smart contracts without paying crazy fees. The difference is, has been more or less that Ethereum strikes the it, it, it's the it does the best job of being decentralized, and all the decentralized really means is that it does the best job of distributing the computational network amongst the greatest number of participants where some of these other chains, the distribution of computational resources to run the chain are far fewer, which means it's more centralized as far as the people who actually run the chain the same way that early miners had to mine Bitcoin and they were the ones running the blockchain network or the Bitcoin blockchain network. Yeah, because that's something that I've heard along the way is that in order for these chains to function, you need miners to run them or some kind of administrator so some of these smaller chains might just be one company running the chain correct mm, that's the thing i mean flat out for most of these cryptocurrency protocols and blockchains it probably wouldn't be the best pr for them to just say like we're the only ones running the note because then most people be like so what makes you different than, than the bank um and something i didn't go into earlier is that you can also have a with blockchains there are permissioned and permissionless chains same way that on your computer Certain apps, you know, you need admin authority to use and some you don't. So when most people are talking about blockchains, they're usually referring to permissionless ones, meaning that you don't need special authority to interact with it or to see it. Um, so certain companies, they are they have explored creating prior permissioned blockchains, meaning that the general public will not be able to see them. And those have not gotten the best reception. Now, there's still use cases for that. Um, but we're talking about mass adoption, utility for blockchains. Most of them will be permissionless chains. Um, so that being the case, most people do not want a central authority running a permissionless chain for that reason. Because the people running the chain, they do have the ability to, in a way, falsify what's happened on the chain. It just takes an extravagant, an extraordinary degree of coordination between it, it's almost an unfeasible degree of coordination required for that to ever happen. Uh, and then there's built in ways that if any sort of individual node operator or miners misbehaving to disincentivize that misbehavior uh, by financially penalizing that, uh, that operator. So that's kind of what also prevents that from happening. Um, but yeah, so some are, are more centralized. For instance, Solana is pretty heavily centralized when you compare it to something like Ethereum. Uh, but then there's other chains that kind of exist somewhere in, in the middle ground. Um, and that's something that it is, could be said for some of the other crypto tokens in existence, primarily stable coins. And stable coins, long story short, there is they're basically designed to keep their peg one-to-one -to, -one to a fiat pair. And so uh, whereas Bitcoin, you know, might be $40,000 right now, could be $38,000 we wake up, could be forty five dollars when we wake up. A stable coin, let's use one for the U.S. dollar. It's a dollar right now, be a dollar when we wake up, or be a dollar when we go to bed, uh, you know more or less. It might move by 0.0001%. 
you know, but it's more or less keeping that peg so that people can kind of denominate and view it as something that is stable, hence the term stable coins. But even in that landscape, some of them are centralized, like Tether, like Circles USDC. And then you have some that are fully decentralized or as decentralized as they can be, like Maker's Dai or Terra's uh, Terra Dollar. And so that dichotomy you'll see come up time and time again throughout the ecosystem of centralized options and decentralized options. Interesting. So I kind of see these cryptocurrencies now as more or less commodities, digital commodities. So these are you know pieces that people might want to use to enable them to create a smart contract. Is that correct? So that, that's a pretty good framework. And so part of the what's driving the demand for Ethereum specifically is that you have to use ETH, which is the native coin for Ethereum. You have to use ETH to pay for the transaction fees. Gas fees is what they're called. So if you want to use Ethereum, you need to have ETH to use that chain. Whereas some chains the fees are so low, it, it doesn't put a tremendous amount of uh, demand pressure on the asset itself. And then some tokens, you don't use them for fees, but they may be used as to give you access to something. That's a really great example, actually, of, of, of NFTs, because NFTs are technically tokens. Technically. Um, but you can associate artwork and that sort of thing with the token. And so something like... There's a project I'm invested in called the Hall of Fame Goat Lodge. And the same artist who did the artwork for Board Ape Yacht Club did the artwork for this project, which is part of why I invested in it. I did a thesis there being, okay, if this artist is known for this, the biggest collection of all time, at some point in the future, when people are priced out of this collection, they may want another piece of art from this collector. Same way if you couldn't get the Da Vinci, this piece of artwork, you still might want to go get you a Da Vinci. You know, and, and over time, it may catch up in value. But what they have done is they are actually hosting a music festival in Las Vegas next month. And your NFT is actually your ticket to the festival. So in that sort of situation, having that gets you access to something. But it's not like you use this NFT to pay for fees, but you do use the NFT, that token, to achieve an end. And so... That, that, that gets further into what's known as token economics or the contraction being tokenomics for different projects that allows, it's, it's kind of the same way that if you're invested in stocks, people talk about, you know, earnings and how you can kind of do the calculation for revenues and what should this stock be valued at. It, it's basically the same, it's, it's the equivalent of how you can assess what the value currently and in the future may be before you invest in a token, uh, because not all tokens are designed to really accrue the value that the protocol itself may be creating. Some are literally just give you access. They're all very wildly. Some, you know, have infinite supply. Some have limited supply. Some are deflationary. Um, some have genuine utility to pay for fees on the network to perform a certain action. So it's really important that as an investor, you really familiarize yourself with what exactly it is you're buying and if it is even designed to go up in value, because that's not always the case. Some are literally designed to stay stagnant in value for various reasons. So it's something to keep in mind where I think sometimes people just think that if they buy a crypto that has a low price and a low market cap, that it's going to go up. Those are components of assessing that, that possibility, but it does not I guarantee that that's actually going to be the case. Yeah, absolutely. And I've actually heard some interesting 
podcasts. I can't remember exactly the show now, but they talk about the metaverse and they talk about how NFTs could be used as tokens, as you say, or tickets to get into certain events in the metaverse too, because it's it's digital. So you don't need uh, to show up with a paper ticket in your hand. Yeah, no, you don't. Yeah, you definitely don't. And it's it's funny just, just how far things are going and what's being done there. Go ahead with your thought. Um, just moving on, if say that I'm sold and I want to go out and buy some Ethereum, I'm assuming you're going to tell me that I probably shouldn't go on a broker like Coinbase. And there's a better way to buy it because, correct me if I'm wrong, if you buy it through Coinbase, then they, you know, they held it in their wallet, not yours. It's funny you say that. It's funny you say that. That basically comes down to what's known as self-custody. Self-custody is really, really important. And fact of the matter is when you first buy something on Coinbase, no, you do not have self-custody of it, but you can. And the way you do that is by moving it off of the exchange and into a wallet that you own and you control. Now, when it comes to wallets, you have two variants. You have cold storage, and you have hot wallets. Cold storage wallets are what they sound like. Uh, they're disconnected from the internet. Hot wallets are connected to the internet natively, basically, you can say. Uh, now, both can be safe to use, but cold wallets are the safest you can get aside from paper wallets. And paper wallets are too risky for most people. So um, the way you do that, once again, like we talked about earlier, you just make a withdrawal transaction from your Coinbase account and you deposit it into your personal wallet. And so that's all you have to do to do that. Um, now, the thing to keep in mind there is really just fees and convenience. And everybody has to figure out what's better for them. But for most people, setting up a Coinbase account is going to be convenient. But trade-off is usually that out of, compared to many other exchanges that exist, Coinbase is almost on like the highest end in terms of fees and how much they charge their users. So, and it wasn't always that way, but it is what it is now. So sure it works, but it, I almost never use Coinbase personally, almost never. I have some assets on Coinbase, but I, I almost never use it to buy anything because the fees are so bad. So um, you can use something like Coinbase, but other really good exchanges are Gemini, which was the exchange created by the Winklevoss twins. Uh, they also own um, Nifty Gateway. And then you also, which is an NFT platform. And you also have Kraken, which is really good. You have KuCoin. And KuCoin, for some people, weirds them out a little bit because uh, it's a more predominantly Asian uh, exchange. But it's very high quality. has some really cool security features. And you can get access to a lot of projects there that you can't on other exchanges. Um, so those, those are all really good exchanges. You can also use things. There's a, these platforms called like ramps, basically, which are just direct fiat to crypto conversion platforms. But the fees there are pretty bad too. Like the fees are usually anywhere from like seven to ten percent to do that. But it's you don't have to create an account or anything. Really, you kind of just put in a little bit of info, then you just put in your credit card. But I wouldn't advise that if you do have the time to just make an exchange account. And then with that, you have centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges. Long story, long short story. There, centralized exchanges, the fees are going to be lower because you're not paying gas or network fees necessarily. Assuming we're using Ethereum. Um, but you assume a bit of counterparty risk. We use a decentralized exchange, which is something like uh, Uniswap. What's happening there is basically you never 
leave your funds with the exchange. What happens is inside of your wallet, and you would need uh, a hot wallet of some sort to do this because it needs to be connected to the exchange on the internet. Um, this is how smart contract executed, but you take your wallet, which is something like MetaMask, and then you connect it to something like Uniswap, which is the DEX, which stands for decentralized exchange. And then there's a, there's a box. And then one box is the input. It's what you want to sell. And then the other one is the output. It's what you want to receive. So smart contract right there saying, I want to use this as an input to this vending machine. And then I want, you know, this output. So I want to put in Bitcoin. That's actually a bad example because most of these days you can't use Bitcoin in its native form. You have to wrap it. Anyhow, let's say I want to put in $100 of the stable coin and I want to get out $100 of Ethereum. So you tell that to the exchange, you hit swap, and then the first time you do this, it's going to ask you in MetaMask to approve the transaction. So it's like, you got to give us permission to interact with your wallet in this instance. Do you give us permission? You say yes, if that's what you want to do. If as long as it's a safe, smart contract, you hit yes, and then you hit swap. Once you hit swap, what it's then going to do is pull up a transaction fee. It's going to say, okay, based on how many people are using Ethereum right now, it's going to cost you this much to do this. Are you cool with that? You say yes, or you say no. You say yes, boom. Automatically, what happens is that the input you, you put in there, it automatically removes it from your wallet. But the moment it removes it, it replaces it one for one with the output that you wanted. And so at, at no point did you ever have to give your funds or your assets to this DEX. The DEX just interacted with your wallet so that instead of you saying, okay, hold my money, now give me the thing, it actually gives it to you and it takes your money, if that makes sense. That's the, that's the reference analogy I can create. Uh, but it does it in an instant so that the moment the, you lose or you give up your asset, you automatically receive the other asset in the exact same moment. Does that yeah, make that, sense? That totally makes sense. To me, this all sounds very revolutionary if it if it works out and it is mass adopted the way that many people think that it will be. And also sounds very deflationary. What do you think about that? Because as soon as you start cutting out yeah. all these middlemen, things are going to get cheaper, no? In a lot of instances, it can. But then that's when we see, depending on how the network is designed, Ethereum got more expensive to use in some ways. But net net, are people, if they're still ahead, then, then it does kind of raise that question of, all right, what is the use of the value of the utility of all these middlemen? And that's one of the coolest things about the crypto ecosystem, but the blockchain ecosystem as a whole, Web3, whatever you want to call it, is that for the most part, it is par for the course to take the value that has been created by removing these middlemen and then reinvesting that back into the community, back into the protocol and finding new ways to give value back to the stakeholders. Um, so even from, from a finance perspective, MetaMask was the first wallet in the space to successfully monetize themselves because traditionally wallets have been viewed as kind of like a public utility or a public good. So developers would create wallets, but they wouldn't really have a business model aside from, you know, maybe trying to use that publicity to then leverage some partnership or ads or whatever. But I think they began monetizing some point in 2021 in that time to now they've already generated over $300 million in revenue and it's a free product to use and they don't advertise. 
And so that has come just from them adding a small bit of fees to do swap transactions directly in their wallet and not have to go to MetaMask. So that being the case, they take that money, then they double it back down on development. So they find new developers. So what I think we're really seeing is, and this is what 2021 really marked for me, is a brain drain. So the same way that there was kind of like the the brain drain from the U.S. to different countries um, back back many, many years ago, or vice versa, where people are basically saying, okay, where can I get paid the most for the knowledge that I have? We're seeing the same thing happen now where people are leaving jobs at J.P. Morgan. They're leaving jobs at Deloitte, at Chase, at these different hedge funds, at these different legacy tech companies, Facebook, Uber, to go work for Consensus, to go work for Coinbase, to go work for OpenSea, to go work for A16Z, for Sequoia or Pantera, because they're seeing that there's much more upside as a whole to the ecosystem growing than there is in these legacy institutions. So I wouldn't necessarily use the phrase deflationary, but in the concept of there being value accrual happening at a rapid pace inside this ecosystem, most definitely, most definitely. Wow, that's really interesting. So where do you see the opportunities then? Great question. I think the opportunities, the biggest opportunities are building in the space, providing something of value or joining a team that is creating something of value there. And the other opportunity still to to acquire some of these assets, to, to, to really do your homework, do your diligence, decide for yourself which of these things you think you want to take a bet on, because in some ways it's still a bet at this phase, but what are the safest bets. I mean, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people, you know, a year and a half ago that thought Peloton was as safe as it got, you know, and then oh, see man. how that played out. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, always be aware, don't ever invest more than you can afford to lose, but there's a lot of information out here. Just the, uh, recently, yesterday, I think it was, I put out a, what I tried to do is basically condense down a really long uh, article, a really long blog effectively or or investor report that Pantera Capital put out. And they're one of the oldest uh, hedge funds that are crypto only firms that run by Dan Moorhead. I think they have like $6 billion assets under management, something like that, exclusively cryptocurrency and blockchain projects. And they were just making their assessment of like, hey, prices seem really cheap right now. You know, like uh, as far as how we're looking at it, we still see strong, strong rallying, you know, opportunities, especially long-term for these core assets like Bitcoin, like Ethereum. But then we start to look into the, the metaverse and the game file and DeFi sector. There's still a lot of projects that have the opportunity to hunt 200X, 1,000X over the next five to 10 years for the ones that stick around throughout that time. They, most of them won't. Let it be very clear. Most of what we see right now will not be around in five years. You have been warned. But there are plenty that will be. So somebody can take the time to, to do their research, really figure those ones out. There's tremendous investment opportunity there. But if you don't want to put any money up for risk, start contributing, start working, start freelancing, start you know working with some DAOs and just contributing to the ecosystem. Because a lot of times you can get paid out in a native token to a protocol that you might believe in, or get them to pay you with some stable coin, or just get a regular, regular job working for one of these companies, you know, and really be a part of building something tremendous. And they may give you equity in the company, you know, because a lot of these people can get exposure investing on the on the stock market side of some of these companies that build blockchain products or in the mining space. And that's another angle to go about it as well. And if you don't do that, very last thing that at a minimum is earning interest on some stable coins. 
because you can safely earn 20% interest on these stable coins. And, and for some people, it will feel risky, but it's not. You can, and I can explain why, uh, but there's other platforms where you can very, 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 very safely earn four, five, 6% interest. But there's ones paying out 20 that are still safe. I mean, there's ones that will get you thousands of percents, but those are the dangerous ones. Those are the ones that collapse overnight. You know, with the, the ones that are doing 20%, there's a lot of reasons why they can do 20%. And one of the main ones is over collateralized loans. That's how this whole ecosystem is built right now. If you're in the lending and borrowing business, they have to be over collateralized for this to work right now. And that's what we don't see in the traditional legacy financial world. It is literally all debt. But in this world, crypto world, it's all collateral. So it's like run off with the loan we just gave you. We're going to keep all of your money. <laughs> you know, so it's hard to be insolvent as a lender when everything is over collateralized and you can prove it on chain. That's a big, wow. big difference. Yeah. That's yeah, that is a big difference in the, the way that those companies have to function. Um, I guess one way that I sort of thought in my uneducated mind to get exposure to crypto at a low risk way would be to mine. Is that still a possibility? And if so, what does that look like? I see this a lot. One of my clients and and he's in like the telecom space, cell phone towers, that sort of thing. And he he wants to start up a crypto consultancy firm, something more private. Um, and, and, and one of the things he wanted to do was to, to do mining or provide mining as a service for his members. And I feel like I broke his heart when I really told him, I was like, yo, honestly, that's, that's not the move. Like, and the reason I say that specifically with something like Bitcoin and Ethereum, now mining as a whole is still a great idea, but same thing there. You have to do your diligence to find out what are the best projects to mine and how to go about that. There are some projects, um, I can't remember the name right off the top of my head. Maybe it's XDC or something. A friend of mine, he 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 left for two months to go on tour. He plays in a, in a rock band and he found this app that allowed basically when you move around, it, it, it's like geospatial mining. So when you move, it will, it will pay you out on these tokens to kind of track your movement data. That's one way to mine a, a coin. And that coin itself, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it went up by over like seven, 800% in 2021. So if you were mining that in 2020, that could have been quite, you know, those dudes make a hundred thousand dollars, you know, and all they were doing was mining this, this coin. Um, and then you have other projects like Helium Network that allow you, basically what they're trying to do is distribute 5G networking. And so you can buy a, um, a 5G repeater, basically an antenna that you can order. And, um, you know, there might be $600 or so, $400. You can order one of those, put it up. And then once that's connected to the network, you'll get paid in these Helium tokens and those tokens you know, at their high have traded for you know, roughly 50 some dollars and they're 20 some dollars right now. But at the start of 2021, they weren't even five bucks. So like, these are different things that most people have never heard of. Those are profitable mining opportunities. Bitcoin, Ethereum, nah, there's almost no point um, in mining it. The best alternative would be to buy some, stake it, and then earn interest on it. Because the thing with mining in particular is that there's always somebody edging you out in terms of performability because it's kind of a game of power, literally. Like how much hash power do you contribute to the network? Because the more hash power you're contributing, the more computational resources you have, the more likely 
mathematically you will solve the block equation or the hash because basically all that is is a mathematically scaled equation that gets more or less difficult based on how much power is contributed to the network if there's more power than the network needs it it raises the difficulty or i'm sorry it lowers the diff it raises the difficulty of mining the coin and if there's not enough power contributed to the network it lowers the difficulty so that it incentivizes more power to come online uh, and vice versa whereas some of these other methods there's not that you know dynamic at play so that is an option but for the most part it will be far more profitable just to buy some and then earn interest on it that's amazing man you know i i don't own any crypto i'm not exposed because i'm a big believer in uh your circle of confidence and for me it's it is so far out there but you really helped me to understand a lot of this so i want to thank you for coming on it's been great i'm gonna have to listen to this back a couple times because man there's so much there and i really like to get you back on so we can talk a little bit more maybe when i'm a little bit more educated on some of this stuff maybe we can dive into some of the different alternative coins or something like that but this has been great um and just wanted to say thanks for coming on and if you want to just let everybody know where they can find your products or services absolutely no this has been lovely joe i really appreciate this and, and once again just so your audience knows joe is very gracious with me man i slept through our first call time and uh, he was gracious enough to, to allow us to record this i really really appreciate that man um but yeah uh, as far as resources for people there's a youtube channel uh, we're putting out more and more information there. Basically, everything we put into our course last year, I'm basically making like 99% of that available to the public now, um, just so people can have access to it because we're always making new stuff. So on YouTube, just look up Savon Springer and you can find uh, our YouTube channel there. Uh, when I first made the YouTube, I was making Ableton music production tutorials. So don't be written out if you come across those. That is still the right channel, but we pivoted to make the YouTube crypto stuff. Um, so there's that. There is the blockchain blueprint, which is a book that I wrote. Uh, I got a copy. That's going to be too much work to grab it. But the blockchain blueprint, a practical guide to crypto in an impractical age of fiat. Um, you can get the paperback of that on Amazon. Uh, but you can also, for your audience, if they want to download the electronic version for free, you can go to nativeassets.co forward slash blueprint book. And then all you have to do is input your email address. And then you, you will be sent, uh, you'll uh, immediately get access to a downloadable copy. And you can also get the, the Kindle version on Amazon if you want that. And there's also an audio book that I recorded that is also for free. Uh, just listen to our podcast. And if you want to go to that, go to anchor.fm forward slash native assets. And then you'll be able to find the uh, book there in, in series and parts. So you can do that as well. And then we also have a Discord where I just put ton of ton of game and also just your audience knows that is free right now it may not, not always be that way and there may be an nft involved in the coming months to get access to that but as it stands right now we're letting everybody in for free uh so i really encourage that so news updates my nft portfolio trades i'm making all of this stuff tutorials how-to videos all of that is in there um and i will leave it in the show notes for you but link tree forward slash Savon Springers. We can see all of this stuff. We got medium um, page as well. We got LinkedIn if you want to connect, but I know I just said a mouthful. We're just trying to put as many resources out there for people as humanly possible. If you want a private consultation, you can book that uh, as well. So 
we got plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff going on. And I would love to come back whenever you're ready. And anytime you just want to, I'm your crypto guy now. If you want it, man, hit me up. We get off this. I give you my number, man. You have my direct line. Just holler at me, man. Get your get your confidence where you want it. Cause I, I can't have you missing this boat, Joe. It's too good of a boat to miss. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. Thanks a lot. Savon, this, this has been great, man. Appreciate your time. I really, I really do. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate you, man. Joe is not a financial advisor and may have interest in the stocks discussed on the show. So do not take any information included within this podcast as a recommendation or formal advice. Thank you.